Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Well, good evening, Coa. Uh, We are in chapter six again of Ephesians. And so if you're a guest, uh, we've been journeying through this entire book. And uh, starting in chapter four, we've been really learning something together as a church. And what we're learning is how the gospel has an impact in certain relationships. And so uh, we've been looking at the relationships that we can have in the church because of the gospel, uh, in the community. And in the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at how the gospel impacts home life, right? We talked about singleness. We talked about marriage. And then last week, we talked about parenting. And today, we look at how the gospel impacts our work and our jobs, our schooling, right? And the relationship we have maybe with our supervisors, our bosses, our coworkers, or maybe our employees. And so as we begin, I want to give like a massive shout out to like the NIV uh, uh, commentary series, the TNTC commentary series, Tim Keller. Guys, I pulled a ton from those resources to help form this message this week. So I want to give honor my work cited like on the front end of this, okay? Um, So today we ask one big question. If you're taking notes, we're asking this question, what happens when you take the gospel out of home life, out of church life, and you bring it into the world? Like, how does the gospel affect how you do your work, how you do your job, how you pursue your vocation, or maybe you're in school right now, so how does it affect your degree program? Uh, Today's passage, guys, is incredibly down-to-earth and really, really practical for us. And I pray that it'll be really incredibly helpful for you in your day-to-day work life or day-to-day school life. However, uh, if we're going to understand this passage correctly, we need to do a little background work, right? Uh, To understand what's being said in its historical context. And we'll need to address many of the ways that this very passage, guys, has been misunderstood, it's been misused and abused. And it's really caused a ton of harm to people and God's glory. So on the screen, let me show you sort of the path we're going to take as we walk through this passage together. Uh, first step, we're going to look at the background work, uh, understand the con- context of this passage. Uh, then we're going to look at gospel principle number one, this teaches us. Gospel principle number two, this teaches us. And then finally, we're going to see how Paul gave us um, that inside the gospel, it actually gives us the power to obey these two principles, okay? So let's start here with the background work of this passage because there's a lot of things that may bring up some red flags to us. We saw the word bond servants or slaves. We see masters and we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What is going on here? So what we need to do is begin with this passage with a little background contextual work. Why? Because the modern reader, guys, like you and me, when we read a passage of scripture that starts out with bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, that should feel like it raises a few red flags for you, right? And understandably so. Guys, there are plenty of people who look at this very passage and say, uh, hello, don't you see the Bible condones or encourages slavery? In fact, a few years ago, an op-ed in the New York Times read this. Of course, the New Testament encourages slavery. It, in fact, it tells slaves to obey their masters. 
Man, even worse, guys, back in the mid-1800s, many in the South and Christians used this text to support the atrocity of the transatlantic slave trade. They said the Bible says slaves obey your masters, so therefore modern slavery must be okay, right? But is that really what God is encouraging here in this passage? So we have to do a little bit of background work, right? So that you and I can understand what's really being said here to first century Christians and see what God has to say about bond servants and masters in that context in the Greco-Roman world. Does that, does that make sense? So we've got to do a little bit of this background work. Uh, so the first thing uh, that scholars point out to us about this text is that their first century context of bond servant and master and our modern context of bond servant and master is vastly different because of our American history. Our American context with, again, the terrible atrocities of the transatlantic slave trade or global sex trafficking really influence maybe how we understand this passage and understandably so. However, the context of this and the rights and the freedoms and relationships that bond servants and masters had in the first century were much different than what we see in our American history from the 16th century onward. Does that make sense? This is really important for us. Uh, first century slavery, this is the time that Paul's writing this letter, it was very different institution from the ruthless American one. That's not to say that first century institution of slavery was a good one. I'm just saying that it was a very different one. So think for a moment, what comes to your mind when you hear bondservant, when you hear slaves? What comes to your mind? And I ask for a brief moment that you suspend that for a second and let scholars tell us just four things, quick things, about what that situation was like in the very first century. And I think that'll help us shape what's going on in this passage. So first, at that time, first century, Greco-Roman world, the servitude Paul's talking about was actually not based on race, like we saw in our American history. Secondly, this servitude was actually never permanent. It was actually only about 10 or 15 years long, and I'll share why just in a moment. Thirdly, this servitude here was not based on kidnapping and systematically going out and capturing people and then having them as slaves for life. And not that this was good, but most slaves during this time were captives from wars and they could end up actually gaining rights and privileges. Again, I'm not saying that it's a good thing. I'm just saying it's a different thing from what we had in our history. Fourth thing we learn is that the servitude discussed in this passage often refers to something called indentured servanthood, something looked different than our culture. And so indentured servitude really talks about this contract between two individuals in which one person worked not for money, but to pay back a loan or to pay back a debt within a set period of time. So rather than money, they gave their service to a master or to a boss or to a supervisor. And they would accept that as sort of the income for that. And so these servants would typically work for maybe somewhere between four or 15 years, depending on what that loan was or what that debt was in exchange for what they wanted. And while in first century life as an indentured servant was often harsher and more restrictive than normal life, it wasn't viewed at that time like the slavery that we had. 
In fact, there were laws in place to protect certain rights and privileges of those bondservants during that time. So do you see what we're doing here, guys? We're seeing that being a bondservant in first century century wasn't race-based, it wasn't permanent, it wasn't based on kidnapping, and they actually had rights and privileges. It was vastly different than what we see in American history. In fact, did you know that at the time this letter was being written, um, you could actually go to court against your boss, supervisor, or master. Like you could actually take a complaint with your master, bring it before court, and get justice. Like very different. Bond servants had rights. They could own their own property. They had families. They lived in their own homes often. And they wouldn't remain in servitude forever. So as you do the background work, you begin to realize that although first century servitude was not a great institution, it was a very different one. It was not monolithic and as horrific as the slavery we saw in the transatlantic slave trade where roughly 12 million Africans were enslaved and transported to the Americas from the 16th century through the 19th centuries. A grave sin against any and all who practiced and promoted this type of thing and the effects that we saw in the United States in race relations, especially amongst profession Christians. So although first century servitude was not a good institution, it didn't bring the emergency of abolition as it would have as if Paul was writing this in the 16th century. Does that make sense? There are plenty of places in the Bible that talk about how we look at social structures and how we look at injustices in social institutions. And the principle found in those parts of the Bible would actually condemn the practice of slavery. But this passage is one of those places where Paul is addressing households and not institutions. Does that make sense? So other places in scripture really does address institutions and what's sinful and wrong. But what Paul is doing is he's gathering with the local church. And so he's saying, this is a real institution. How do we live in the midst of it for God glorifying and gospel purposes? Households in Paul's day, where he's speaking to Christians, were made up of spouses and children and domestic servants who may live in the house or near the house. So when Paul was doing this teaching, he was addressing Christian households and again, not a social institution. And guys, it's majorly important because it shows us another reason why Paul call, wasn't calling for the emergency of abolition, but the immediacy of gospel living. And you can tell by reading this text that Paul's not saying, hey, Christians, let's get together and decide what to do with first century Roman or Greco-Roman institutions. And he's not asking, hey, what do we think about social structures during that day? He wasn't doing that. In fact, he was saying, guys, he's saying, listen, and this was right on a Sunday. He said, guys, tomorrow is Monday. And how will you live inside of those sinful institutions that's distinctive because you believe the gospel? Are you guys with me? Now, if you're like me, this background information is maybe helpful, but it doesn't make the issue feel all that settled for me. And maybe for you. Like still the question remains, why doesn't Paul just totally call out the institution of slavery as sinful? Like, why doesn't he just do it? As he gives the instructions to live out the gospel in the midst of it, right? Have you ever wondered that like I have? Like I just want him to say it, right? Like come out with it. 
Well, as I was wrestling with this text, guys, and looking through commentaries, looking for answers and dealing with some frustration with this, I want to show you something that F.F. Bruce said, who was a great 20th century Bible scholar about this text. And I found what he said to be really, really helpful. He said, when you read what Paul says to masters and servants in the book of Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon and other places, Paul brings us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. He says the attitudes of the gospel that gets created in a Christian and therefore the attitudes that Paul demands of Christian means that every kind of slavery inside the Christian community just couldn't last. Using this text and others like it, here's what Paul does, he says. Paul sets up any kind of slavery, he sets it up for failure. Paul sets it up to wilt and die from within. And F.F. Bruce was right. As we look at the impact Christianity would have later on the abolition of slavery, we know that this text and others like it, when properly understood, set slavery up for failure. And it did indeed wilt and died as a result. And although professing Christians misunderstood this very text and simply took part in modern slavery, it was actually the Quakers and evangelical Christians who led the charge for abolition of slavery in the British Empire in the 1830s. The evangelical Christians out of the Great Awakening and the Quakers led the way and said, we must abolish slavery. It's absolutely wrong and we must have it stopped. And so Christians like William Wilberforce used the Bible and it's true and eventually helped to enact the Slave Abolition Act in 1833, which abolished slavery in most of the British Empire. And that later would impact the abolition of slavery in the United States in 1865. Now, that's not to say that this text is easy. It's not to say this text was used right. There was tons of churches and Christians using this text to keep people in chains and strip their dignity and do all kinds of atrocities. And so what we're trying to say here is that once it's properly understood, like William Wilberforce or B.B. Bruce or Christians for centuries now, once we properly understand this, then we can see what God is actually trying to say to us in modern day. Does that make sense, guys? Very challenging text for us. Now, guys, after having said all of that background, I just spent 14 minutes on background you might be saying, okay, Aaron, that context was helpful, but literally, bro, what relevance do the instructions to first century Greco-Roman servants have to me and my life? Like that was 2000 years ago and you said times are different now, right? Well, I'm here to say that Paul's instructions are relevant to you precisely because they were relevant to first century servants. And you're like, what does that even mean? Well, listen, if their conditions were less than ideal and they could honor God and find a level of fulfillment in work and their relationships, although they were imperfect at time with their harsh employers, then you and I can live a life of fulfillment, satisfaction, do good work for right reasons and glorify God. Does that make sense? So because it was useful then, it's precisely useful to us when our circumstances are not the same. Make sense? So therefore, what Paul is going to say in this passage, it will actually help us 
live a meaningful work life and satisfying work relationships. It's a simple fact of history that the early church was actually filled with slaves and servants. They flooded into the early church. And the question is why? Why did they flood into the early church? What was attractive about God and the gospel for them? Well, listen, it's because God through Paul and the gospel, it gave them something that in spite of them, in spite of their humiliation, in spite of their drudgery, in spite of their grinding and the crushing nature of their work, the gospel made their work meaningful and satisfying and sustainable and bearable. And so if Paul and his prescriptions in these verses could help them and they flooded to hear it, then don't you think it can help you too? And that's what leads us finally, 16 minutes later, to the very first and short point of two points in this message. Amen, we got the first point together. We're doing okay so far. I know it's not fun to give backstory, but that is so important that we don't trip over our American history and we call it sinful, we call it wrong. We say this was used improperly, but we also need to address what was God's purpose for this and what was the context. So that's why we do that at our church. Number one, first point, if you're taking notes, the gospel calls us to see all people and all work with dignity because Christ is the Lord of all. Now, as we make the modern Western jump all the way to today's world of employees and bosses rather than servants and masters, I want you guys to notice like this threefold structure in this passage. You'll see three things. You'll see a command God gives, number one. You'll see, number two, a motive for the command given. Number three, you'll see a reward or a warning as a result. If you're taking notes, that threefold again is command, motive, and reward or warning. So let me show it to you. Verse five, here's the command. He says, bond servants, here it is, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. We'll come back to fear and trembling in a little bit, but that's the command, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. That's the command, what's the motive? He says, do it with a sincere heart. In other words, he says, obey with a sincere heart just as you would obey Christ. You see the motive there? He's saying your work is not really about your boss, it's your ultimate boss. So although your boss is maybe incompetent or he's lazy or she's lazy or they're not good at their job, you're actually not serving your front boss, you're serving your ultimate boss. Does that make sense? So here's the motive of why we can obey our bosses at work or we can work with a, a, a sincere heart. It's because we obey like we were obey. Christ. Verse six, another motive. Not by way of eye service. We don't serve our employers just when they're watching us and they're seeing our computer. And if we've logged in today, we don't serve as people pleasers, but we do it as bond servants of Christ. Interesting, he calls us bond servants of Christ. So he's teaching these modern day first century servants that they're actually not under they're masters, that they're actually under Christ. And so they can serve a master that they hate or despise or an incompetent one. They can serve them like they're serving Christ. And so Christ takes the heartache of the master. And he says, I'm the one that sees you. And your work is unto me, not really your boss or your supervisor. And it begins to reorient how we think. So we don't work for promotion. We don't work for a pat on the back. We work because God sees us and he's worthy of us to serve our work like worship unto him and not our boss. Make sense? Verse seven, it says again, rendering service with a good will. And why do you do it? As to the Lord 
and not to mankind. So meaning, guys, we don't serve your company or your boss so you can get a salary increase or a promotion or accolades or power or acceptance or approval or importance. We don't serve for those reasons. We serve at the request as if Christ, guys, was the one who handed you the request, you the job, you the responsibility. So we serve our bosses, but we serve the boss behind the boss. We serve the master behind the master, God himself. Does that make sense? So then that is the command motive. And then verse eight, it says, here's the reward. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he or she will receive back from the Lord. So he's talking about a reward. If we serve our boss and our job, no matter who sees us, and we are serving like God was the one that asked us to do the project that we hate and we can't stand and it's a pain in the neck. And if we, we're, if we think that it's like God that gave it to us and we do that unto him, there's a reward. There's literally a reward. Now, I don't know what that reward looks like. I'm not saying you're gonna get a big old house or a nice car or you know, you're gonna get retirement paid for one day. I'm not saying those things, but whatever that reward is, if God's the giver, I want it whatever that is. So that's helpful for our hearts. When many of us, you've been on that project team and you've worked for that boss and you've like just broken your back for it and then you got like nothing back for it. This text is showing us that it never really was for that boss. And so you can work hard with a sincere heart like God was the one that asked you. So what's the point he's making here? He's making the point that when you're at work, when you're at school, or at home because we're in a pandemic and you're working for your boss or at the direction of your professor, you're actually working for the Lord. Guys, this tells us that all work is a calling from the Lord. And so all work must be done like it was from him and like you're giving it to him. And that's why it reshaped first century bondservant life because they're like, there's another master, but he's one who frees me and sees my value and gives my work dignity and says I matter and then he'll give me a reward, I want to serve him. I want to be with this God who would take my sin and give me his life and that one day he'll give me eternity. I want to work for him because of how he worked for me on the cross. Does this make sense? Guys, this is what motivated early Christian life. And we see this even in the Reformation. There's, we see sort of in Martin Luther's theology, this justification by faith alone, but they also call the Reformation is that the secular and the work or the secular and the um, uh, sacred life would actually uh, not be separated. That means that you could work as worship for the Lord. That was part of the point of this Reformation. That it wasn't just a, a sacred life over here is what pastors did and missionaries did. But when you go to work, you actually realize it's a calling. It's a calling unto God, for God. So it's not just what you do for the church that's good and worshipful, but when you step into work, when you log on, when you go to school, that is an act of worship. It's from God as a gift to you, but it's to God. Does that make sense? This reshapes how you think about poor bosses, a lot of workload. What the commentaries also tell you is when Greek and Roman people addressed members of the household, guys, they never even talked to the bond servants. That was like daily life for them. So they were ignored and mistreated. They had some rights, but it just wasn't the greatest lifestyle. But what's interesting, they would only address masters. So it's amazing here that Paul actually addresses head-on bond servants. In fact, he addresses them first, and even more, he talks to them more than he talks to masters. 
I love this. He's treating them with the dignity that God sees them with. People, we must be the same way that Paul is. How do you see your boss, your supervisors, your employees, people underneath you? How do you see them? Do you see them or treat them with dignity? And we're seeing that God even did this through Paul in first century. Paul treats the bondservants with dignity. Why? Because they were made in the image of God. So he doesn't ignore them. He addresses them with truth and grace and honor. And he even protects them against harsh masters by calling them out. So how do you speak? How do you view your boss, your classmates, your professor, your coworkers? Do you see them with the same dignity? Do you give them words of truth, grace, and honor? If not, this passage is calling you to reorient yourself, to see them as made in the image of God, how Christ may have died for their sins. And because he valued them, friends, we should as well, regardless of how they treated you. Because you treat them like they were Christ, not how they treated you. Does that make sense? It reshapes everything of how we live as Christians. Secondly, uh, look at what he says to the masters in this text. And I want you to see how really revolutionary this was. So God flips the coin from talking to bond servants. He flips it and he says, hey, bosses, Hey, supervisors, now it's your turn to listen in for a minute. Verse nine, here's the command, threefold structure. Let me show you it again. Here's the command. He says, masters, and this is the mind-blowing revolutionary statement. He says, masters, do the same. <laughs> mind-blowing. He's saying, masters, you serve too. You serve with dignity. You serve them with a sincere heart. You don't be harsh with them. You honor them. This is what verse 21 is all about. Remember, we talked about verse 21, how that shapes everything, that they would mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is mind-blowing. God commands masters to do the same. And he says, stop your threatening. There was some mistreatment happening. And so then he gives the motive right here after the command. He says, knowing that God is both their master, the bondservants, and he's yours in heaven. So he's like, hey, listen up. You're not the ultimate master. If you mistreat them, I'm coming to discipline and rebuke you. It's a motive for them. So he gives them a warning then. He says, and there's no partiality with God. What is essentially he's saying is he's saying, hey, this is a level playing field here. You may show partiality because you have a position of power, master, and they don't, but I don't show partiality. And if you mistreat them, you don't get special rewards from me. I'll come and I will discipline you. Do you see how God is orchestrating a way of justice and a way of right living? Imagine if you and I treated each other with dignity in our jobs and our coworker, that person that irritates us and you hope they never log on to Zoom for another meeting again. You hope they quit their job, whatever the case may be, that person at your work. Imagine if you saw them in a new light. Imagine if you saw them this way. It reorients how we think about each other. Again, more than that, Paul says, do not threaten them. The great Roman writer Seneca uh, said to treat your slaves as enemies is what he said. And that's all they know, fear and power. But Paul flips that. He says, if you're a master and you're a Christian, don't you dare treat them this way. Never threaten, but treat them with grace and truth and respect and honor the way Christ treated you in the gospel. So again, he says, stop threatening, knowing that God is both their master and he's your master in heaven. And there's no partiality with him. He's leveled the playing field again. 
You have a master, your servant has a master. There's no favoritism with this one master that you both share in heaven, meaning in God's eyes, masters and servants are absolute equals. And so treat them as such. Guys, this was so revolutionary and crazy in Paul's day. This is why F.F. Bruce said that the gospel brought people into a situation in which this form of slavery in any slavery would wilt and die because you see a mutual care and submission and it's all rooted in how God cared for us when we were enemies. Guys, do you see how the gospel transforms work, transforms relationships, can transform injustice? And it takes people that were enemies or at odds or mistreatment and it brings them on a level playing field. They're both made in the image of God. God doesn't die for just one race or one ethnicity or one nationality. And if God were to treat us at equal and die for us, and he would even give up himself and his glory to empty himself, to take on our sin, then we can maybe view and treat our coworkers similarly. So what does this mean for us today? Let me give you a couple things here. What does this mean for us? Well, it means number one, that all people at your workplace deserve honor, respect, and dignity. Yes, that means the incompetent ones, means the lazy ones, means the lying ones and the cheating ones, the ones that speak poorly of you and the ones that you have to carry all the workload for, the ones beneath you, the ones above you. Why? Because they're made in the image of God and they're worthy of dignity. So church, do you treat them the way you were treated when you were an enemy of God due to your sin? Do you treat them with the grace, truth, and respect that you were given? Which brings us to the second thing we learned from this. That means that you were called to serve others wholeheartedly as if Christ was serving, as if you were serving Christ himself. Why? Because as a Christian, you have been served and are being served by Christ. And therefore now guys, you have a capacity to serve others the way you've been served. Do you see how the gospel reorients everything? What's been done to you is what God wants to do through you. And he gives you all of this service, all of this care. You have enough capacity in it to give to others. And you know what this does as a result? It begins to have a tangible effect in the fabric of society. It changes how you work. It changes why you work. You realize that your job has nothing to do with your job but everything to do with being reminded of how Christ endlessly and unconditionally served you. And then we are called to do that for others. And if bosses and employees, guys, if we can get this, in that toxic work environment that you might be in, then it changes. Overbearing bosses, they cease to exist. Underperforming employees, they do as well. Why? Because both are seeking to serve one another just like Christ served them. Uh, Peter O'Brien, he's a commentator on Ephesians, and he says this, ultimately, because of what we're sharing here, the distinction between the secular and the sacred, it breaks down. Every task, therefore, however secular, however menial, falls within the sphere of Christ's lordship. All work is a calling from God, so you must see it as that. You're not obeying your boss. You're not getting your project done on time. You're not hoping to not get in trouble at work. You're doing it like God asked you to do. And the motive to get that done is because of the beautiful way that he served you endlessly and tirelessly for you. And so you serve like you're doing it unto the Lord. Sure, some work is lower skilled. I get that. Some work doesn't get paid as much. I understand some work is higher skilled. And in our worldly pecking order, we see work sometimes as good work or lesser work, but not in God's eyes. 
There is no favoritism with him. White collar, doesn't matter. Blue collar, doesn't matter. Your work is valuable. Even Christ proved that, the fact that he worked. In fact, he worked a blue collar job. So the fact that God's hands would touch work, thus deemed it as valuable. That means no matter what you do, no matter what work you do, seen, unseen, you're wiping noses, you're wiping booties, whatever you're doing at your job, it has value because God touched work with his own hands. Therefore, he deemed it with dignity. Does that make sense? That gives you a ton of hope. If you feel like I just work a job and I, don't, I, I just could care less about this job, God doesn't care, no one cares, God does. And the more you work for his glory, there is a reward for you. Maybe not come from your boss, your supervisor, whoever it is. It might not come from them, but it comes from God. Work for that boss. Work for the boss beyond the boss. Does that make sense? This has great implications for us. Think about this another way, okay? Think about this for your own home. Unless somebody cleans the countertops at your apartment, uh, you're gonna die, <laughs> okay? It's called hygiene. Either you have to sweep the floor wash the sheets, clean the bathroom, do all the nasty, dirty, low-skilled housework, or you pay someone else to do it. But if you don't do it, probably someone's gonna die for some hygiene issues, right? Plain and simple, yet incredibly dignifying. You guys get what I'm saying, right? All work is a calling from God. So all work must be done and treated as if God directly gave it to you and it's done to him supremely. And that's why we must not snub our noses at those who make less than us or do lesser work than us, or that are in a lesser position than us. Let us not talk that way because all work done in morality is from God and it's to God. And it's your act of worship, not what you do in the walls of this church. That's your worship. So how do you worship during the week? Who are you serving? Why are you serving? What are you doing? Has nothing to do with the platform of your actual job has everything to do with him. And he's the one that rewards you as you serve and honor him. Let me help you with a real practical example of what happens in our hearts real quick. Um, one pastor and theologian that I love, his name's R.C. Sproul. And he was wrestling with this concept one day as he went to visit someone as a pastor at the hospital. And he was sitting there for a fairly long time and he was looking around and he realized that there was like this caste-like system at the hospital. Uh, side note, I'm not trying to pick on those of you in the medical profession because this happens everywhere. Uh, this is just what he observed in this one location that often happens everywhere. He says that as he sat there waiting to visit his friend, he noticed that there was top doctors and then there was next doctors and there was residents, then there was nurses, then there was the administrators, then there were certain staff, and then finally the housekeeping. He noticed them interact with each other. And again, there's nothing wrong with a leadership pipeline to say, but he realized that there was like this pecking order and there was all sorts of ways in which people at different levels would let people know that they were beneath them. At what point he remembers seeing a nurse who was being talked down to by some certain doctors, but of course she was very attentive and very alert because they were above her. Well, then one second later, she was walking down the hall and a man who was coming from housekeeping was pulling a cart filled with soiled linens and he was pretty cheerful though. He raised his head to look at her and he said, hello. But the nurse lowered her eyes, looked to the floor and walked right on by ignoring his God-given dignity. And R.C. Sproul said to himself in that moment, oh my word, this is America, right? This is the place where we don't have caste-like systems and we treat others as equals here. But wait, 
that's not actually how America or the human heart works. The human heart is always trying to find a leg up on someone, aren't we? Unless the gospel of grace works that out of you. Have you taken the gospel, guys? Have you taken the gospel down to such a deep level in your heart that it doesn't matter what someone else does, what they look like, what their profession is, what they've been through, that you view them with dignity and honor and there's no favoritism in your heart. If not, this passage is for you. This passage is telling us how God views us and how we are to view one another. Number two, the gospel calls us to serve others with sincerity as if Christ was serving, sorry, the gospel calls us to serve others with sincerity as if we are serving Christ himself. Verse five, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Do it with a sincere heart, just as you were obeying Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God, you do it from your heart. Rendering service with a good will as you're doing it to the Lord and not mankind. Verse nine, he says, masters, you better do the same. Do the same for them. Serve in the same way. For God is both their master and yours in heaven. Guys, let me share with you for a moment how radical that is. Paul is relativizing all human bosses and masters and all human careers. He's saying to servants, I want you to show respect. I want you to do a good job for your boss, but I don't want you to ever think that he's your real boss. He or she is not your ultimate boss. They're only your earthly one. They're only a boss in the earthly realm. And how important is that for us to understand? I want to share a little bit of this. A problem often experienced in white collar work and blue collar work are sort of different problems on each end of the spectrum. And you might find yourself in this type of work. Let me share what often happens. A problem often experienced, not all the time, but often experienced in white collar work is overwork. Everybody's anxious. Everybody's career oriented. Everybody's trying to climb the ladder over each other. Everyone's pushing. Everybody's under pressure. Overwork, overwork, overwork. Over hours, over hours, over hours. Why? Because they believe that career means everything. It's their very identity. And so it's ultimate for them. Overwork is a problem for white collar world. And in a moment, I'll show you how the gospel helps that. However, an equal problem is often experienced in blue collar work. Not all the time, but what's often experienced in blue-collar work is underwork. Again, not always the case, but there's something that's observed here by harder-working blue-collar workers, and they're sharing something about their experience. And they're saying that many in blue-collar jobs find themselves not liking their job as much. They often dislike their management, and they find themselves doing the bare minimum. They even find themselves only working with their eye on the managers upon them. But when their back is turned, they go back into apathy and they leave. They're not treated well at their job. And so what Paul does for white collar workers and blue collar workers, he gives a revolutionary principle to both groups. He says, hey, listen, I want you to work for Christ. I want you to work for the Lord. Those people are not your bosses. He's your boss. And what this does is two things. On one hand, for white collar work, it destroys overwork. Down in verse eight, it says, you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever he does, whether he's a slave or free. Meaning this, if you do your work, you put in a good day's work, but people aren't noticing you, you're not having a breakthrough, you're not being successful, you're not getting enough at your job, 
you're not getting the school you wanted, you're not getting the promotions, you're not making enough money, then you can still be a whole person. You can still be a whole person. Why? Because it only matters what Christ thinks of you and who he is and what he's given you to make you enough. So white collar friends, our identity can't be found in more work to make us more of something. It's already been given in Christ. You are enough. You are significant. You are valuable. No, no amount of money or pleasure or status or importance or possessions can give you what your heart really wants. And so the gospel frees you from overwork. On the other hand, what about underwork? Some of you might be really struggling with motivation at work and you're like, I work 40 hours, but I work 28 because it's at home and I just don't care anymore. We've all been there, right? What do people do if they despise their job and their boss? What does this text say to them? And Paul's saying, hey, your real supervisor, listen, he's always watching. He's always watching. Therefore, you must always do a good job. You must always work with all your might and work for him wholeheartedly. He's encouraging us to not look at our career as an ultimate thing. Don't look at your boss as an ultimate boss. In other words, Jesus is telling us here, I'm the real career. I'm the real master. I'm the real job. I'm the real supervisor. I'm the real manager. I'm the only master. Don't let anything else master or define who you are. And if you turned your heart to me, I'll comfort you. I'll care for you. And I'll satisfy your heart in me. Guys, this is revolutionary for us. It makes sure that we don't overwork and it makes sure we don't underwork. Imagine if your job gets this. It reshapes everything together. This is revolutionary. It means blue collar or white collar will always work really hard, but they won't engage in overwork or underwork. If we understand this rightly, guys, then you and I will be actually the most sought after workers in the world. Why? Because we'll be whole, we'll be balanced, we'll be stable people something that this world desperately needs. And it's all found in what God has given us in the gospel. Last thing, number three. Number three, the gospel gives us the power to carry out those two principles we just talked about. How God gives all work dignity and all people dignity and we're to serve them like we're serving Christ. But we can't just do this in our own moral abilities, just pick ourselves up by the bootstraps and just try harder, right? Right? The gospel has to give us the power to carry out these two principles. Listen, listen. The Bible never actually tells you what to do without giving you the ability and power to do it in Christ. It's locked in that first verse, which we read at the very, very start. Before all the stuff about husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and servants, it says this, submit to one another out of, here's the key word, reverence for Christ. That word reverence is key. So if you checked out for the past 40 minutes, guys, check back in. And this is super crucial for you. You guys have been doing great. You haven't checked out, but just if you have, there you, there you go. That word reverence here means this. It means the joyful, astonished, all in wonder at what Christ has done. That's what reverence means. The joyful, astonished, all in wonder of what Christ has done. Psalm 134 says this, because you forgave me, I revere you. Guys, did you hear that? What it's saying is that you need to be melted with the spiritual understanding, a joyful, astonished all in wonder at what Christ has done. And what he's done should always affect the way you work. Guys, you have to realize that Jesus utterly and ultimately served you by going to the cross. 
He served you by dying where you should have died because of your sin. And if you are melted, guys, by this awareness, if you're deeply moved in your heart by this, then you allow him to actually be your ultimate master, your ultimate Lord, and it will change the way that you work. Guys, it's an amazing statement. Masters, serve your servants. Servants, serve your masters because all of us have been served in a way that leads us to joy. It's an awesome wonder how God has served us. This is so key. So one final thing, example, tomorrow, you're gonna get up, you're gonna go to work on the computer online, or you're gonna go in the office. There's gonna be somebody there Someone that you despise, someone that that's irritates you. Maybe you're that person. And if you're this person, you need to listen to. But you're going to go into work with somebody or you're going to work for somebody that you despise. Somebody who's incompetent, someone's foolish or lazy. It's going to make it hard for you to get up and go to work. And how are you going to serve this incompetent, foolish, or lazy person? That's the big question. And what we do is we think, how did Christ do it? Because the Bible says that Christ died for us when we were still enemies of his. We weren't just incompetent, foolish, or lazy. It says that we were enemies. And what did he do for us in that state? He served us and he worked for us and he died for us when we were worse than incompetent, worse than foolish, and worse than lazy. We were enemies of Christ. And what did he do? He died for us. If he could serve enemies, why in the world can't you and I go into work and serve a fool, serve someone incompetent, serve someone lazy? We must think this, my master served me a fool. And if you feel a reverence for Christ, a joyful all in wonder at what Christ has done for you, then you'll be able to serve others differently. Do you guys see what I mean? This is transformative for us. And on the other hand, what if your problem is not despising your job or thinking your boss is a fool? What if your whole problem is you need to please people and you need to be doing well and you want to perform and you want accolades and you want people to see you? Then here's what's for you. Friend, look at Christ dying on the cross for you and just remember that Jesus is the only master who will forgive and die for you. That career you're dying for will not die for you. That boss you're dying to please will not die for you. What you're trying to give your life over to will not serve you. Give your life to the one who served you in the first place. That's a worthwhile endeavor. That keeps you from overwork and it keeps you from underwork. If you make your career your master, you're gonna fail at your career and it will crush you. Call no one master but Christ and serve him like that. It protects you. It protects you. If you make work master, you put all your time and effort into, that master will crush you and it will not die for you. It will not serve you. So reorient your life. Rethink about your work, rest, balance, your intake here. See Christ as the whole purpose of what you live for. My friends, I want you to use this and think upon these things this week. Let the gospel change your attitudes at work, your attitudes towards people under you. Let it change your attitudes towards people over you, your attitude towards good managers, towards bad managers, towards your career. And most importantly, let the gospel change your attitude and let it be one of joyful all and wonder at what Christ has done for you. And it changes everything. 
Church, let us go and work this way, the way Christ worked for us. Let's pray. Bye.